0: First off, Abner's got a microphone. Questions, thoughts from anything this morning? I'm going to, okay, I'll make an observation. Um, I'll make an observation. One of the things that churches can struggle with is rightly understanding the usefulness or the non usefulness of statements of faith, confessional statements. Um, I think they can be helpful. I think they are often helpful, and I think they can at times be unhelpful. But passages like this give us the warrant. I mean, you probably don't ask yourself this. Like, on what basis do we write a statement of faith? Who told us we could do that? Who told us that'd be a helpful thing? I mean, especially when, um, as Protestants, we've seen the danger of so enshrining statements of faith uh, that they become equal with Scripture. You know, that's that's the Roman Catholic understanding of truth, their epistemology. The 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 Church canons and decrees are of equal authority with Scripture. That would obviously be an error, um, and and yet sometimes I think we can so far swing the other way that you we we don't we distrust any statement of faith or any statements on anything, whether it's the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy or or what have you. We have evidence in the New Testament of the early church putting doctrinal statements together, little short ones. But this is one of them. It's Paul, or I think more likely the church in general, I think Paul's referencing something they know. I think he's now maybe they know it because Paul taught it to them. Maybe they know it because they put it together. But here they take—we we do this, right? We with our songs, we take Scripture. And we can, not word for word quote, but they adapt it with Christ in there. They swap in the glory of the Lord. They now know this side of Isaiah, this side of the cross is Jesus Christ. They plug him into that and they get this statement. Five times in, if you turn over to First Timothy, five times in the pastoral epistles, you see the same thing. Um, Paul's trustworthy sayings, um, some of them even rhyme in, I'm going to read one of them to you in Greek. Some of them even rhyme. And it's evident, and especially in the, the trustworthy sayings, these aren't original with Paul. Paul's aware of them, he likes them, and he affirms them. That, that's, a, that's a good, pithy, short way of saying truth. Um, and so Paul likes it, he's a fan of that. And that's the evidence of the church trying to distill truth, probably for singing or for teaching content. And that then becomes the warrant I think, the basis for why we do the same thing, our church has a doctrinal statement, and it's our attempt to summarize core Bible teachings on various topics. It's not the Bible, but it's useful insofar as it points us back to the Bible. It's useful insofar as it says, hey, we think the Bible says there's one God, and here's some passages that we think say that there's one God. We think the one God exists as three persons. Here's some passages, and so it's a helpful summary. And so Probably in the Efree or in our, in our tradition, we're more in danger of being distrustful with statements. And they're not authoritative. They're a summary of a book that's authoritative. And in that sense, they're really useful. But they certainly are helpful. We've got some visitors here, and you could read our statement of faith and have a pretty good idea of what we believe. That would be much more helpful than if you said, what do you believe? The Bible. Now, we could have that conversation, and eight or nine hours later, they might have a good idea of what we believe. But as a summary of what we believe, what we confess, it's helpful. And that warrant, that pattern, begins in the early church. So in 1 Timothy um, 1.15, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. It's questionable whether the of whom I am foremost is part of the saying, probably not, or just here's your first doc I mean we, you could picture teaching this to the, the little kids. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Like that's really central to Christianity, right? Some of the statements that they put into Pithy sayings are not the types of things we would pick. If you had to pick like the top five truths that you could imagine needed to be needed to be summarized, go to chapter three, verse one, you get to the one that rhymes. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I wouldn't have guessed that one, but there it is. In Greek, let me let me read this to you. It it actually rhymes and has meter. One of the trans I think the NET translation, is it the NET Bible, Dave? You got the NET Bible, right? Can you open up the do you have, do you have it with you or did you leave it the NET Bible, Dave? Do you have that with you? Did you bring it? You, Dave? Do you have your net Bible with you, or did you, did you leave it at home? Oh, okay. I'll see if I can find it. Okay, that's all. One of, one of the b- translations actually puts it in rhyming meter because of the Greek. I, was, I think it's the net Bible. I wasn't sure, but that's neither here nor there. I will go on. Let me just get my little Greek up here. So here is, um, here is the p- trustworthy saying. "Atis episkopos orgatai kaluergu epithumai. And I think the net, it might not be the net Bible, says, if anyone an overseer desires to be a noble task, desireth he. They put it, they match the rhythm and meter. Again, not what I would have expected. They would have put, like, hey, make sure we get this down. But but that's something important to tell people, because we live in a culture where any aspiration can sometimes be viewed negatively. You know, don't ask us, we'll ask you, right? No, here, Paul says, hey, to aspire to be an overseer, to be an elder, to be a pastor, It's great. And then he goes on to say what then your life has to look like and what, what goes on with that. The next one we get is in chapter 4. I'm just doing a brief survey of the trustworthy sayings because, hey, we're here. And you guys didn't have questions. Because um, I was so clear. And uh, anyway, verse 9. And I think here verse 9 is reaching backwards, okay? Um, I don't think verse 9, because verse 9 is where you say this this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. I don't think it's what comes ahead. I don't think it's verse 10. I think he's actually saying that about verse 8. Um, which we really need to go back to verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for all bodily training is of some value. And I think here's the quote. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Is saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. So I I think the church was saying, hey, godliness has a value now and godliness has a value later. And they wanted to remind themselves of that. Two more, we're done. Um, I believe we got to go to Titus to get our next, no, we'll go to Timothy next. Um, There it is. 2.10 through 13. Probably the biggest one. No, no, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13. Then we'll go to Titus. Um, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, and my ESV even puts this in poetic meter. This is the biggest one. And again, look at these truths. It's, it's remarkable. You, know, you think, what would my top five things be? If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then a final trustworthy saying is over in Titus, I believe. Or am I wrong? Is it not in Titus? It's no, that he's not quoting a trustworthy saying. He's he's quoting one of their own poets. Um, have I missed? This? Does Titus not have the fifth one? Titus three eight. Thank you, Linda. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Um, it's again, I think, reaching back. So let's go back to verse four. Um, we're going to see the trinitarian work of God in. This saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I think the saying is um, we're justified by his grace that we don't become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But Paul's introductory formula, um, faithful words, five times in the pastorals. And so when you put that all together, um, it, it evidences already a, an attempt by Paul and the church. To put biblical truth into small packages that have some, sometimes rhyme or meter or poetic meter, so they could be remembered, it, probably to um, to, to uh, catechize or to teach their members. They could have been singing this, however, and so that that then seems. Paul, the spirit inspired Paul, says, "I like it. That's good. That was a good one." And so there becomes our warrant or model for doing the same thing. Um, some churches uh, hold to um, the regulative principle. Has anyone ever heard of the regulative principle? And one of the so, the, so I actually wrote, this is how many people read the pastor's pen. I did two pastor's pens last year on the regulative principle. No, I'm just, no, you did. But. Well, no, because when I tell you what it holds to, you're going to be like, what? It's actually got a lot more going for it than most people think. The regulative principle is an implication of the um, sufficiency of Scripture. And what the regulative principle says, well, the regulative principle answers a question, which we all have to answer, which is, what is permissible? What is required for our worship? Scripture says not to forsake assembling together. What are we to do when we get together? What qualifies? Could we just watch episodes of Cheers back to back and break? Would that count? No. Okay, then what are we supposed to do, and where do we decide what we're supposed to do? So people who hold to the regulative principle say only those actions prescribed by Scripture are acceptable for worship. So Scripture doesn't tell us to do special music. So there goes special music. If you press it hard, Scripture doesn't mention guitars. Yeah, so you want to get a lyre or or something, or a timber, you you could do that. Um, so if you press it, and, but, but I want to get the, but, but where it's really interesting is this. God gave us 150 and plus songs to sing, sing those. And so that's exclusive Psalter. I wish we sang a whole lot more of the Psalms. I, I really, I really do. And I think those who are basically committed to, and here's the mentality, God has given us songs to sing. You think you wrote a better one? Let's sing the ones God gave us to sing. I mean, it's not a stupid argument. We've got inspired songs we could sing. I don't care what the Gettys wrote. It's not better than God's word, right? So why don't we sing the songs God gave us to sing? So on the one hand, exclusive psalter, I respect a lot. Evidence is a high view of scripture. It evidences a high view of God's word. Um, and I think certainly singing, we ought to know a lot more of the psalms, we ought to sing a lot more of the psalms. There's, there's two main reasons why I don't think exclusive psalmody is required by Scripture. I certainly think you could do that in faith. You could just say, we're just going to sing the psalms, and I think you're fine. If you're insisting everyone needs to just sing the psalms, the, the two reasons are, one, Christ will always be veiled in the psalms. He'll always be veiled in the Psalms. You'll be able to know, this is talking about Jesus, but you will never have the clarity of language in the Psalms that you get from the New Testament about Christ's sacrifice and death. He will always be a shadow. He will always be lurking, for lack of a better word, in the Psalms. Um, obviously some more so than others. You know, Psalm 22, by God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you won't have the cross language. You won't have that type of language in the Psalms, which is why many, there's sort of a middle position. There's the exclusive Psalter that are updated. Isaac Watts, we sang one of his hymns this morning. He has an entire book where he took the Psalms, put them into English lines with meter, and added New Testament cross theology to them. It's Really cool. Pick it up. It's every psalm Christianized, sort of like. What, and I was going to get it what you saw right here in Ephesians with the sort of updating. The now, don't mistake what's going on. Paul's not introducing it as God's word. It is God's word in that it's included in the letter to the Ephesians. Um, but what they did is they took Isaiah and they added Christ to it overtly, clearly. They didn't. It's, it's not hidden. It's not changing what Isaiah meant. The, the glory of the Lord will shine upon you. We know which person in the Trinity in particular, that glory is shining. It's Christ. And so they plug... So there, what gives us the warrant? What gives us the... On what basis do we compose new songs? Things like this. That's the basis. Uh, it's, the, it's this... It's this um, Paul, next week, we're going to look at in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a variety of songs we're singing. We ought to be singing the psalms. I don't think the Bible requires we ought only to be singing the Psalms. But things like this indicate, oh, hey, they took Isaiah 60 and they put Christ clearly and overtly into it. And Paul likes that. Okay, cool. So the Gettys can keep on writing. Sovereign Grace can keep on writing. You know, great. Um, that was a long spiel. Any, any thoughts on any of that? But these are the little things you see in this passage where it evidences the church was thinking, the church was chewing on Scripture, and the church was coming up with new ways of saying things and new statements, and Paul Paul's a fan of it when it's done right and it's done well. Um, and so in that vein, we have some model for doctrinal statements, for new songs, for things like that. You probably don't... That doesn't keep you up at night much, but for me, I want to know if the... Abner, mic to Linda Brewer, please. Oh, no, 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 no. The five people listening to the podcast want to hear the question, Linda. Oh. I would assume this kind of goes along with the catechisms that are like the Westminster catechism and that type of thing. Oh, those are fantastic I mean, isn't tools. Isn't that just those the same idea? Those are fantastic tools for teaching kids. I don't use the Westminster. Um, the oh, Okay. Heidelberg, whatever, London. We've used an adapted version of the of the London Baptist Confession with our kids. Um, No, those are great tools. These are all tools, and I would be wrong if I said you must do it. But we certainly see patterns of something like this happening in the church. Um, the 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 normal reaction when I tell someone you're catechizing is that sounds legalistic. Well, sounds New Testament to me, but okay. You don't have to do it, but the point is the early church was intent upon passing on this truth. Now, keep in mind, the New Testament's getting written, so they got the Old Testament, but they don't have what we have, which is a complete New Testament canon where we can just, in a want to point people to Scripture verses. So they had to take what had been taught to them by Paul. They had to take what Jesus had said, and they had to take what the Apostles had preached, and they had to put it into some packages that they could pass on and communicate. As the Scripture's getting written, the church is going to need this um, to to function. And these are the evidences of what they are doing, the steps they were taking, the measures they were taking to hold on to and to pass on truth. So you get little mini doctrinal statements. You get little mini songs of truth. And here we learn that in Isaiah 60... The Lord, who shines upon us, is none other than Christ himself, which is pretty cool. But, you know, catechizing great. It's fantastic. I mean, it can be done wrong. It can be, I mean, the, the reason these things get a bad rep is in certain traditions and places, they become rote exercises, and as long as you can answer the 57 questions, you can be confirmed. And now you can take Holy Communion, and people just go through with it as a ritual, and it means nothing and then people see that, and they're like, well, that's not attractive. I agree, that's not attractive. Um, but it's, it, it's a really simple way, when you're sitting around the table with your kids, to just, okay, Abner, who made you? What else did God make? God made everything. Why did God make you and everything? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him. Why should you glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. There you go. And all my kids know the answers to this question. Well, the twins don't, obviously. But, but, but you, there's some consistency. They can test each other, right? And, and if, if we don't flesh that out for Abner, that's going to be worthless. You know, Even the demons believe and tremble. But there's a doctrinal basis that we can work with, that we can talk about in the car, we can talk about where we're going. At least that would be the goal of what you're doing. I think catechisms are fantastic tools. Um, I, I go through it and adapt it It's hard to find when you completely 100% agree with, but um, most of the London Baptist ones pretty excellent. Um, So anyway, and I can if you want a PDF of that, I can send it to you if you're interested. Just send me a text or an email. She's she's not quite that far along yet, but uh, but but she can she can do the first three. Talitha can do the first three. Uh, But, and and then Eliana. I mean, you can't even understand what Eliana says when she says it, so... Um, (laughs) She's speaking in tongues or something, yeah. Um, I mean, it's really cute, but we got to work on that sometime. Okay, sorry. This is being recorded, I'm sorry. Okay, Siobhan, what's what's your question, Siobhan? Oh, it's unrelated to what you were talking about. That's totally fine. Um, Well, now I have to go back. Um, When... Towards the end there in Ephesians from today. Oh, we're back to Ephesians. Hey, thank you. Um, I was just wondering if you could, um, let's see, for everything that becomes visible is light. And I know um, that might be hard to speak to, but do you have any more thought on that? Yes. Okay. I think, I mean, Paul's... Clearly now moving from a metaphor to a theological point, because if I take a flashlight on oh my flashlights on me, if I took a here, we go. Um, here we, hold on. There we go This is not now light right I mean there's a sense which is shining and it 's bright, but I think Paul is taking this very common biblical um, metaphor of darkness and light and shining. And saying, look, here's, here's what God's light does. It, it reveals, it exposes, and I'm filling in, and either some things, when they're exposed, scurry away, but whatever remains and stays in that light gets transformed into light. That's how God saves us. The reason I say that is because of the, the alteration of Isaiah 60 that he then cites Awake, O sleeper, right? Um, Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We were saved, so I'm I'm mixing this passage and and 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul uses the same light imagery. So, we were saved when God raised us from the dead. He put life into us, we we were dead, and He raised raised us. And um, and, pause, implication of what I'm saying I'm arguing regeneration is the causal effect of faith, not the reverse. We believe because God pulls the veil back. We believe because our blind eyes can see. We believe because our deaf ears are unstopped. We believe because our heart of stone is replaced. So the picture is, here's Christ and the gospel, and it's glorious, and we don't see. Not because Christ isn't glorious, but because the veil's over our face. God, 2 Corinthians um, 4, 6 who said let light shine out of darkness has caused the light of the gospel to shine in their hearts. So God does a work inside of us. Now we can see. I would say that work inside of us is is equivalent to awaking or arising from the dead. And now that you're alive, now that you can see, Christ shines on you. And then you become light because his light is shining in through you. Your spirit comes and dwells within you and now you become a source of light, So Christ's light, everyone who's ever been saved has been saved because Christ's light has shone upon them and they've become light. Everyone else scurries out of the way. And so he wants us to walk as children of light, not participating in deeds of darkness, but bearing the fruit of light and then exposing things. Because precisely in that exposure, I mean, the beginning of salvation is the conviction of sin. John 15, right? This Holy Spirit, when He comes, He'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What better way to convict the world of sin than both the positive example of a growing righteous life and when it's appropriate? I want to say when it's appropriate because otherwise you'll end up like Westboro Baptist. It's always appropriate to condemn sin. Not necessarily always. We're told to season our words with salt, know how to give answers, but as it's fitting, as it's appropriate, You're exposing the deeds of darkness with your mouth as well. You're interpreting it properly. God calls that not an affair, but adultery. You know, God calls that sin, not goodness, right? And so you're communicating the light of his truth. And for some people, that's precisely what's going to expose, convict, and then convert them. And then they become light. So in that metaphor, we're shining light, and then what's exposed by light becomes light itself. And he, I think I've got that right. And this, admittedly, the logic there's tricky because the first part of the movement's easy enough. What's, what you shine light on becomes visible. Yeah, that's easy enough. What's visible becomes light. <laughs> and I think probably more what's visible shines. What you're shining the light on reflects and is bright, right? Um, in that sense, it becomes light because it's really bright. That might be what he's thinking. But with the Awako sleeper, and Christ will rise in you, I think that's this statement's talk is, this is how the church spoke of their salvation. The fact that this adaptation already exists, Paul's citing it. He's not coming up with it. Therefore, it says, he's citing something they know. He's simply saying, and you know this because this is how you guys even speak of your own salvation. That, that Christ called you from death to life, and then Christ shone on you. So, he's linking that salvation, so they're, they're a church. When they speak of their salvation, they're not saying, I asked Jesus into the my heart. They're saying, God caused me to awake from death and Christ showed on me. And now Paul, to a people who that's their way of saying it, says, you can go be children of light and you can shine. God, through you, can shine on others. Oh, that's, I think, the implication. Greg, what, you taking a break, boy? How Matty to get on him. Well, it seems to me that one aspect of your becoming the light is, or the, the object shined upon becomes light is it's reflecting back the light. Yes. You know, you know what are you reflecting? Well, you're reflecting Christ, the light. Mm. So you become light because you're reflecting the light. Yes. If you're in Second Corinthians, let's go to 5. One of my favorite passages on evangelism. Exactly, Greg, exactly. 2 Corinthians seven, 5. Yeah, Sorry. I'm all over the place. 2 Corinthians 5. So much so that we are his arms and legs, we are his body, it's his light shining through us, that Paul says this, um, That is remarkable. When you or I rightly speak the gospel to someone else, God is making his appeal. That, that is truly remarkable to me. That, that <laughs> to, to what degree can I be a vessel for God? If I'll but speak the message of reconciliation rightly, God is making his appeal through me, through you. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, absolutely. It's not us. It's not, look how good I am. Don't you want to be like me? I'll tell you, you can be like me. Become a Christian. Rather, if you see anything attractive in my life, you're just seeing Christ and his light. And if you're seeing the change in my life, if you're seeing the growth in my life, that same light can shine in and through you. God God can change you from darkness to light as well. Yeah, we don't want to... Make, it's not about us and how cool or good we are. It's the light of Christ. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on this or any other related topics? Happy Father's Day. You are dismissed.